Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Tuesday, October 24th, 2023. Uh, there's a couple of anniversaries. Big one, actually. On October 24th, 1648, the Peace of Westphalia mostly ended the Thirty Years' War. The settlement reinforced the idea that the Holy Roman Emperor could not dictate religious terms on the empire's constituent states, but also repudiated the idea that state sovereigns had the right to compel their subjects to adopt said sovereign's chosen religion. It also made Calvinism a legally recognized variant of Christianity and established the legal equality of Catholics and Lutherans. Many international relations scholars credit Westphalia with reifying the concept of national sovereignty with its emphasis on the sanctity of national borders and the principle of non-interference in domestic affairs, hence the term Westphalian sovereignty. Uh, also on October 24th, 1912, all on the same day, the Ottoman Empire, or well, both, I guess, on the same day, the Ottoman Empire suffered two decisive defeats, one to a Bulgarian army uh, in the Battle of Kirkilisa in modern Turkey, which is located in modern Turkey, and the other to a Serbian army at the Battle of Komanova in modern North Macedonia. The simultaneous defeats set the tone for the First Balkan War, which had begun on October 8th and would end in May 1913 with a decisive victory for the Balkan League, uh, which consisted of Bulgaria, Greece, Montenegro, and Serbia. The Bulgarian victory at Kirkkelisa gave its armies, Bulgaria's armies, an open path to Istanbul, though in two battles at Chatalja, which is on the outskirts of the city in November, uh, one in November, excuse me, and then one in February to April, a long one, the Ottomans were able first to stop and then to rout the Bulgarian offensive. Thus, although they did lose the war, the Ottomans were able to defend their capital and thus uh, basically preserve what was left of their empire, uh, which admittedly didn't have much longer to live anyway. Uh, moving on to the news, uh, internationally, a study published in the journal Nature Climate Change earlier this week suggests that significant glacier melting in western uh, Antarctica may now be unavoidable because of warming ocean water. Uh, if true, uh, that means that substantial sea level rise is now likely locked in, even if humanity abruptly decides to start taking climate change seriously. And spoiler alert, we're not going to do that. Western Antarctica is home to the Thwaites Glacier, which is affectionately known as the Doomsday Glacier, because if it melts completely, it alone will raise global sea levels by about 10 feet. Uh, on to the Middle East. In Israel-Palestine, as usual, there are a number of items to cover. Gazan health officials claim that another 700 people were killed in Israeli airstrikes overnight and through Tuesday. If their figures are to be believed, the overall death toll in Gaza since October 7th has now risen beyond 5,700. I know a number of commentators have suggested that Gazan casualty claims cannot be believed because we can't be sure that they're not being manipulated by Hamas. This is a reasonable objection, though for the record it's one I would also raise with respect to unconfirmed casualty claims offered by, say, the Israeli government or the U.S. government, just to pick two random examples. The thing is, Israeli officials themselves say they carried out a whopping 400 strikes on Gaza on Tuesday, and in that context, 700 deaths doesn't seem all that unrealistic. And even if the official 5,700-plus figure uh, is artificially inflated, the likelihood of large numbers of undiscovered bodies uh, still lying underneath all the rubble that now fills Gaza uh, means that the official figure might might actually not be a bad approximation for the reality anyway. Uh, also, uh, and let's be honest, most of the you-can't-trust-the-casualty-figures discourse comes from folks who don't actually care about the real figures but just want to absolve the Israeli military for political reasons. A good-faith effort to independently determine the level of casualties would be great, 
but it would require a ceasefire and a minimum, and clearly that's not going to happen. Uh, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres reiterated his call for a ceasefire during a UN Security Council meeting about Gaza on Tuesday. For that, uh, for criticizing Israel's conduct of the war, alongside uh, also criticizing uh, the October 7th militant attacks, and for noting that this latest crisis should be placed in a historical context, the Israeli government is now demanding that Guterres resign. So uh, that's nice. Uh, Biden administration National Security Spokesperson John Kirby told reporters on Tuesday that, quote, a ceasefire right now really only benefits Hamas, end quote, which is about as clear an admission as you're going to get that the U.S. government only regards Palestinian civilians as real human beings in the most abstract of senses. Uh, The administration is now pushing the alternative of a humanitarian pause or humanitarian pauses, which would oblige the Israelis to agree to stop bombing in specific places or at specific and at, at specific times, uh, but would allow them to keep the bombing campaign going otherwise. Uh, Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken said at the UN that such pauses quote, must be considered, end quote, which would be easier to take seriously if his U.N. ambassador hadn't vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution calling for humanitarian pauses less than two weeks ago. Back inside Gaza, hundreds or thousands of dual nationals remain massed at the Rafah checkpoint in hopes that one of these days, when it opens for one of those meager humanitarian aid shipments coming in, it will also open in the other direction to allow them to evacuate. Suffice to say, many of them have noted that the countries whose passports they hold, uh, including the U.S., are making special efforts to evacuate their citizens from Israel, but have done next to nothing to get them out of Gaza. An increasingly testy Egyptian government says it is working with other governments to try to implement an evacuation, but the ongoing threat of Israeli strikes on Rafah itself is a major impediment. Egyptian officials also say they're keen to increase the flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza, but those Israeli airstrikes are thwarting that as well. Uh, I do think it's best to listen to these criticisms while bearing in mind that the Egyptian government is worried that this war may radicalize portions of its own citizenry and is trying to show the domestic audience that it is doing something, everything it can, really, to support the Palestinians. There is, of course, a substantial historical record of Palestinian issues resonating in Egyptian politics to the detriment of whoever happens to be in charge at the moment. Uh, Doctors in Gaza say that many of the hundreds of thousands of now displaced Gazan residents are beginning to show signs of illnesses linked to overcrowding and poor sanitation. Hospitals are already completely overtaxed and are running out of generator fuel, so the prospects for these people getting anything close to adequate medical care uh, uh, are slim at best, even if the rate of humanitarian aid deliveries does increase to meet the need. Visiting Israel on Tuesday, French President Emmanuel Macron pinched, uh, pitched the idea of expanding the global coalition to defeat ISIS's mandate to include defeating Hamas, too. Macron's comments forced his advisors to quickly tamp down any notion of international forces joining the assault on Gaza, arguing that the notion or the coalition rather could contribute in less kinetic ways by, say, training Israeli forces or closing down Hamas's financial pathways, leaving a 
alongside the uncomfortable fact that the global coalition to defeat ISIS still hasn't fully defeated ISIS and might want to focus on that before it takes on new challenges. The fact of the matter is that these two organizations are not comparable. Islamic State was slash is generally despised in the Middle East outside of a fringe. Like it or not, there's no such regional consensus about Hamas, and it's reasonable to assume that several members of the coalition would reject using it in this manner. Uh, Egyptian officials aren't the only ones who seem to be getting testy on day 18 of this cataclysm. Qatari Emir Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad al-Thani spoke to Qatar's consultative assembly on Tuesday and railed against governments supporting Israel for giving its leaders, quote, an unconditional green light and free license to kill, end quote. Tamim went on to argue, among other things, that, quote, it should not be allowed in our time to use cutting off water and preventing medicine and food as weapons against an entire population, end quote. His comments are are potentially significant in that he's gotten out in front of the rest of the Gulf monarchs in terms of condemning the war, and they may now feel pressured to keep up, which could increase, in turn, uh, increase pressure on the U.S. government, uh, which is still hoping, I think, uh, to keep its Middle Eastern ducks more or less in a row in spite of this situation. In Syria, Russian airstrikes killed at least six civilians in a displaced persons camp in northwestern Syria's Idlib province on Tuesday, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. It's gotten lost amid the Gaza war, but violence in Idlib has been on the rise since the drone strike on a a Syrian military academy graduation earlier this month, even though there's still no indication who was responsible for that attack. Uh, Elsewhere, the Israeli military carried out strikes against what it called military infrastructure early Wednesday in response to apparent cross-border shelling from Syria the previous day. It's unusual for the Israelis to openly acknowledge attacking targets in Syria, but I'm sure they are hoping to deter additional shelling by making a forceful statement. Uh, And in Iran, the Biden administration is accusing the Iranian government of actively facilitating recent attacks targeting U.S. military personnel in Iraq and Syria while stopping short of accusing Tehran of direct involvement in any specific incident. U.S. officials say they've counted 13 such attacks over the past week, not including the false alarm on Thursday uh, in which a U.S. contractor died of a heart attack at Iraq's Ain al-Assad Air Base. Uh, And in response, the U.S. military is reportedly increasing its surveillance activities in both countries. Blinken told the Security Council on Tuesday that the U.S. is prepared to defend its people and security, sending a signal to the Iranians to rein in their regional clients. The administration also said on Tuesday that it's begun contingency planning for a potential mass evacuation of U.S. nationals out of the Middle East in what I assume would be the worst case scenario. So that sounds fun. Uh, One might point out that the U.S. could potentially reduce the chances of a region-wide war, but by, uh, you know, pulling its troops out of Syria and Iraq now, since they're not really doing anything apart from squatting in either place these days, but that's not going to happen, so I guess it doesn't make much sense to waste time debating it. On to Asia and Armenia. The Armenian government summoned Russia's ambassador in Yerevan on Tuesday to complain about a program that aired on Russian state television the previous day in which, quote, insulting and totally unacceptable statements, end quote, were made about Armenian leaders, including Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan. I gather the main thrust of the statements was to blame Pashinyan rather than do nothing Russian peacekeepers for Azerbaijan's takeover of the Nagorno-Karabakh region last month. 
In China, the Chinese government officially announced the firing of former Defense Minister Li Shangfu on Tuesday, which was somewhat anticlimactic in as much as Li hasn't been seen in public in around two months and his sacking was already assumed. There's been no formal rationale given for the dismissal, dismissal, but it's been pretty widely reported that Li is under investigation on corruption allegations stemming from his time as the head of the Chinese military's equipment development department. Uh, Li was also dismissed from his position as a state counselor, as was former Foreign Minister Chin Gong. As you may recall, Chin lost his ministerial gig back in July under circumstances that remain somewhat murky but may have involved an alleged extramarital affair that took place during his time as China's ambassador to the U.S. Uh, in Africa, in Mali, the Malian army on Tuesday accused UN peacekeepers of rushing their pullouts from two facilities in northern Mali's Kidal region in recent days. Far be it for me to defend the UN on, well, pretty much anything. But the reason the peacekeepers are pulling out so abruptly from those facilities is because Mali's military government is demanding that they be out of the country altogether by the end of the year. Uh, but I digress. Uh, the army says that Monday's withdrawal from an outpost in Agelhok was so rushed it gave terrorists, I put that in quotes, uh, an opening to enter the facility and destroy parts of it. There is no indication who these terrorists were, uh, but I think there's an implication here that the UN did this intentionally. Uh, the junta is presumably setting the UN up to take the blame uh, if the peacekeepers' withdrawal doesn't go so well. In Cameroon, an unknown armed group has reportedly kidnapped some 50 people in two recent incidents, one on Sunday, the other on Monday, near the Chadian border in northern Cameroon. Apparently, kidnappings are not uncommon in that region, but mass kidnappings like this are. Uh, Islamist militants from Nigeria have operated in northern Cameroon in the past, but these incidents took place some distance from the Nigerian border, so I'm not sure uh, they make sense as a culprit. In Gabon, the Biden administration on Tuesday officially designated the August military coup in that country as a coup, which means that by law it was required to suspend most U.S. military and financial aid to the country. Uh, the administration had frozen that aid after the coup anyway, so this announcement simply makes things a bit more permanent. I'm sure the aid will be resumed once Gabon has transitioned back to some facsimile of democratic rule. Uh, unlike the still controversial coup in Niger back in July, nobody really seems to be mourning the ouster of former Gabonese president Ali Bongo Ondimba very much, apart from maybe Bongo himself, I guess. Uh, nevertheless, not declaring this obvious coup as a coup may have further undermined whatever credibility the U.S. government still has. Uh, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Allied Democratic Forces fighters are believed to have been responsible for an attack in the city of Oicha in the eastern DRC's North Kivu province on Monday that left at least 26 people dead. Uh, local officials say that most of the victims were killed in their homes, and they expect the death toll to rise as recovery work continues. Elsewhere in North Kivu, fighting between the M23 militia and pro-government militias was reported within 20 kilometers of the provincial capital, Goma, on Tuesday. Officially, M23 and Congolese security forces are abiding by a ceasefire, but the government has been arming local militias as proxies to try to dislodge M23 from some of the territory it has captured. It's hard to know for sure, but I gather uh, from Tuesday's news that uh, this effort isn't going terribly well. 
On to Europe. In Russia, Vladimir Putin is fine, according to the Kremlin, which responded on Tuesday to those sketchy claims uh, we mentioned. In, I mentioned in yesterday's roundup that he'd suffered a cardiac arrest over the weekend. Also, he apparently doesn't use body doubles, despite persistent rumors to the contrary. Uh, neither Putin nor any of his alleged body doubles made any public appearances on Tuesday, as far as I know. Uh, in Ukraine, the Russian military is continuing to pressure the Ukrainian cities of Avdivka and Donetsk Oblast and Kupyansk and Kharkiv Oblast. If that sounds like we're in reruns, that's because this is pretty much where things have stood for several weeks now. Uh, in terms of new developments, Ukrainian officials reported on Tuesday that the Russians had pulled back a bit from Avdivka and were relying more heavily on airstrikes, while Ukrainian Army Commander Oleksandr Sirsky uh, said that the situation around Kupyansk had, quote, worsened significantly, end quote. Russian forces are apparently trying to encircle that city, but it is unclear how much progress they've made. Uh, in Poland, uh, opposition leader Donald Tusk said on Tuesday that he and his coalition partners who won a collective majority in the parliamentary election earlier in this month are ready to form a government. Tusk is surely trying to pressure uh, Polish President Andrzej Duda to move quickly to choose a new government. Duda favors the Law and Justice Party, which leads Poland's outgoing coalition government. And since Law and Justice remains the largest single party in parliament, it seems likely he'll give it first crack at forming a government. Uh, the math, of course, is decidedly not in Law and Justice's favor, but Duda could drag the process out regardless. Uh, in Finland, authorities say they believe the anchor of a Chinese container ship called the Nunu Polar Bear was responsible for severing the Baltic connector gas pipeline that runs between Finland and Estonia earlier this month. They say they've recovered the anchor, which must have detached from the ship, and that there are markings on it consistent with having come into contact with the pipeline, which runs across the floor of the Baltic Sea. There doesn't seem to be any indication as yet that this was an intentional act, but investigators are still working on that part of the case. Nearby telecommunications cables were also cut, and it is reasonable, I think, to conclude that the anchor was responsible for that as well. In Slovakia, former Prime Minister Robert Fico is set to become new Prime Minister Robert Fico on Wednesday after initially raising objections to the designation of a climate denier as the future environment minister. Uh, Slovakian President Zuzana Chaputova gave uh, final approval to a new cabinet on Tuesday that included a different environment minister designate. Uh, and in Spain, uh, that country's Socialist Party and the leftist Sumar Alliance announced a coalition agreement of their own on Tuesday. This was expected and is a nece necessary precondition toward the formation of a socialist-led government, but the two blocs together are still short of a majority in the Congress of Deputies. Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez is still negotiating to win the support of Catalan separatist parties, uh, which at this point seems like it will hinge on his willingness to pardon anyone who was involved in Catalonia's 2017 secession referendum. Uh, if Sanchez cannot cut a deal with the Catalans, then lucky duck Spanish voters will get to vote again in a January snap election. I'm sure they're excited about that. Uh, on to the Americas in Haiti. Kenya's high court is preventing the deployment of Kenyan police officers to lead a UN-authorized intervention to deal with, the gang, with gang violence in Haiti. Kenyan President William Ruto volunteered his police force to lead that mission earlier this year, but his political opponents have challenged his authority to do so under Kenya's constitution. The court is planning to rule on that challenge on November 9th and has barred the deployment until then. 
And finally, in the United States, Adam Tooze over at his chart book newsletter breaks down the Biden administration's self-deluding vision of American leadership uh, going back to President Biden's Thursday Oval Office address, uh, where he said, for example, and I'm going to read the first couple of paragraphs of Adam's piece, American leadership is what holds the world together. The president wasn't just improvising. He has not done a lot of speeches from the Oval Office. A speechwriting team crafted that extraordinary line. It reflects deeply held views on the part of Washington. Back in February 2021, the newly appointed Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, gave several speeches and interviews in which he repeated the line, quote, the world doesn't organize itself. When we're not engaged, when we don't lead, then one of two things happens. Either some other country tries to take our place, but probably not in a way that advances our interests and values, or no one does, and then you get chaos, end quote. This idea that there is a place in the world which is that of America as the organizer, and that without America occupying that place and doing its job, the world will fall apart or some other power will take America's place as the organizer, is deep-seated in U.S. policy circles. As a metaphysical proposition, it is silly and self-deluding. It is bizarre to imagine that the world needs America to hold it together. America itself is hardly in one piece. And I think you should uh, click through and read it from there. Uh, Adams uh, feeling a little fiery, I guess, when he wrote that piece. Uh, I highly recommend you check it out. Uh, on that note, thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter, and thanks for uh, those of you who are subscribed to foreign exchanges, especially if you are paid foreign exchanges subscribers. And if you haven't made that leap yet, uh, I do hope you'll consider it because it's the it's our paid subscribers who keep this place going uh, and allow me to keep doing this work. So uh, on that note, until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.